0: Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 81 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Monday afternoon, July 8th. I've not been nominated- July 9th. July 9th? Yeah, Well, I've still not been nominated. I'm still
1: Bobby Chesney. Who are you? I'm still Steve Vladek, and if we're both here, I think that means neither of us is the big reveal no, in tell prime time. Neither of us is getting the rose, Bobby. Tell the police cars and news trucks to leave my house. <laughs> have they been? Have they, I, know there's, I know there's been construction on your block. <laughs> I sure have. Not. <laughs> um, right. Actually, Karen uh, Maddie, uh, our, our older daughter, the other day um, heard a, uh, an ambulance siren. Um, and she turned to Karen and she said, what's that? And I said to myself, that's living in Austin. That is not part New York of City. And not, or D.C., really. Right? I mean, right? So yeah. there you go. Um, anyway, as you said, Monday, July 9th, we're back after a week away. And, you know, nothing happened while we were gone. Not much to talk about. We'll try to fill it with, uh, what, uh, Court
0: speculation? <laughs> World Cup. World Cup? Okay, let's do frivolity on the World Cup, yeah. and of course we will do some SCOTUS the, By the way,
1: the all-NATO the all World Cup, the the four NATO semifinalists playing for the championship in Russia. They better hurry up in case NATO's <laughs> not there the next week. Just, uh, oh, the irony. Or, um, or or the British government, for that matter. Well, I guess... Bo- so, exit is that what I saw bo- on bo- Twitter? Borexit? <laughs> exit. <laughs> I'm going to replace him with Borat. <laughs>
0: Same difference. Okay, uh, we've got some sustaining members to check in with. and And our two lead sustaining members, of course, are the Dovey Mattis litigation and the military commissions. We've got nothing huge but little updates on both of those. Uh, Following that, we're going to get into our DOJ... National Security Division roundup a little bit early because for once they they took one on the nose uh, a
1: real rarity actually yeah it
0: is and we're going to talk about the uh, the surprising decision in a uh, case uh, known as United States versus Paracha this is Uzair Paracha who just won a I'd say a very rare thing a uh, motion for a new trial post, post-conviction um, 13 years after the conviction. So we'll talk about that, but then uh, we'll also check in with a number of other DOJ-related national security activities. Um, there's, there's some sentencing, there's been some
1: arrests. We'll, we'll talk about all that and then pivot over to civil litigation. Lots of interesting stuff going on in civil litigation, Bobby, including a decision, I think for the first time, we have a Texas Supreme Court decision. That's pretty awesome in the, in the national security context. We foreshadowed it
0: uh, way back when it was being argued. In, and so you'll enlighten us as to what happened in the burn pit litigation.
1: Uh, that's different. So burn pit is the Fourth Circuit case. The Texas case is the dog bite case. The dog? Oh, OK. Dog bites and burn pits, kind of different. Two different ones? But they're both torts. Man, all right. Or are they? OK. Um, so we have the hearing in the 11 detainee habeas case scheduled for Wednesday in the D.C. District Court. We have, speaking of suits against private military contractors, In the Al Shamari case, right, we have some interesting pre-trial maneuverings from Judge Brinkema there. Um, We have, Bobby, an issue I've actually, believe it or not, written about in the Wikimedia case um, about the relationship between the sort of procedure for – disclosing FISA-gathered evidence and the state secrets privilege oh. and whether Congress, by creating a procedure for disclosing FISA-gathered evidence, has actually overridden the state secrets privilege. All right. We'll foreshadow that one. And then um, we have a big ruling on FOIA and, preside- and inadvertent presidential declassification. <laughs> an increasingly hot topic. Which Judge Carter sort of tongue- cheekily says at the early, in the early part of his opinion, this is a question of first impression. That's pretty great. Inadvertent presidential
0: declassification from now on known as IPD. I like it, all right. IP Dean is a new doctrinal category.
1: Students, there's your note topic. Inadvertent the pres- law of inadvertent presidential declassification. Not IEDs, IPDs. Uh, d- different. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll do a little bit of completely pointless and reckless to speculation. Since by the time many of you listen to this, we'll probably know who President Trump's nominee to replace Justice Kennedy actually is. Yeah, I think you know when we skipped last week
0: because of uh, vacation and other stuff, we were hoping that we'd have the nominee and could focus on you know teasing out some insights about national security issues. No such luck. Um, we'll just speculate anyways. <laughs> But we'll try to keep it short, and then uh, we'll we'll talk a little bit about some some pretty interesting cyber provisions in the Senate version of the National Defense Authorization Act. That's a that's a topic we've mentioned a couple times, but haven't had time to get into yet. Uh, then
1: uh, how shall we wrap up? We have got the the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. Uh, their quick, their, their the the awesomely timed for release Tuesday afternoon, right before July Fourth, yeah. of their report on the intelligence community's assessment, which largely backed. The IC's findings about Uh, Russian attempts to influence the Russian election Absolutely. If not going further. further. Yeah. Um, You know, this is, it's just the, it's that's the deep state, right? I mean, John Cornyn, he's the deep state.
0: Well, you know, I I said early on when we started this enterprise, I I had a lot of confidence in uh, the Senate Select Committee and especially with Chairman Burr, and I think that we're seeing.
1: You know, it's, it's not having the impact that it should, but we're seeing some good results. And, and I think, I mean, I, I do want to talk a bit about the sort of Tuesday before July 4th news dump and how I think that actually took a lot of the air out of what should have been a much bigger, to my mind, story. Right, so we'll talk about the framing, and then that'll be it. We'll, we'll get frivolity. to volatility. World Cup! World Cup! So so France, Belgium, England, and Croatia, Bobby, who's it going to be? England. Three ah. Lions.
0: Ah. Bring on the hurricane. The hurricane. <laughs>
1: So, All right, well, we'll so what you're saying that. is, so what you're saying is, what's more likely, uh, the the thing that's more likely to be true about England in three weeks is that they will be the World Cup champions and not that Theresa May will still be Prime Minister.
0: I, we'll talk we'll <laughs> talk about this stuff when we get there. Let's uh, let's jump in now with our sustaining members. First, Dovey Mattis. There's nothing too dramatic to report, but we just want to highlight for folks that 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 long-awaited hearing is nigh. Well, and it won't be the merits hearing. It'll be This will be the, the transfer hearing, right? This will be about the ongoing effort by the government to release John Doe out of U.S. military custody into a location somewhere in SDF-controlled territory in Syria. Uh, John Doe is resisting this. Uh, ACLU is saying it's tantamount to a death warrant. Uh, the government's filing says, look, this is not a dangerous location within Syria. This is a calm and stable I think it's the phrase "calm and stable location." And the DoD personnel they say have the best information about this. Well, they're going to argue about it on Friday. Um, hopefully, we'll get some good coverage. Some of the usual suspects tracking the case. Hopefully, we'll be live tweeting it. Hint, hint. Please inform us because we can't do it. Um, I, I'll
1: say this. I think here's here's I'm, I'm going to predict what's going to happen. Judge Chutkin is going to have you know difficult questions for both sides. She's yeah. going to take the matter under submission. And in another, like, two or three weeks, she'll issue an opinion that doesn't actually settle the matter. That doesn't Because actually, it'll be appealed? Because it'll be appealed. That doesn't actually rule on the merits of Doe's detention. And this saga just keeps on keeping on. So my, a slightly different
0: prediction, or more specific, I think she's going to rule for the government. Yeah. I think the government is going to win, ultimately, on this issue. We'll never get a merits ruling because I think that they're, they're all... For whatever reason, just not going to do that until this issue is resolved, and the government's going to win in the end. But I do think—I
1: mean, I do think that then that gets appealed to the DC Circuit. Even yeah. if they win, um, I—I this- I assume the DC Circuit would issue a stay pending the appeal because yeah. the equities yeah. are so obviously tilting in favor of Doe. No, that's what they did before, so. right? Yeah. So I, you know, it's all is just to say, as we've suggested before, we're no closer to final resolution of anything here. Now, if you're if
0: you're ACLU and this is all going badly for you and a couple of months go by in the appellate process, might you then be able to come up with some, hey, new facts on the ground. It's been a few months since the ruling, and now yeah, yeah, you've I mean, got this. And you could try to co- continue things that way. I think we'll see a little bit of that, perhaps, if it does go against But, but just
1: to be clear, because you know, I don't know how many folks remember our prior episodes, right? You and I disagree marginally about the merits of the current question Judge chuckin is deciding, but we agree completely that there's no reason why she can't also decide the underlying merits of Doe's habeas case while she's sorting out whether and under what circumstances he can be released or transferred. And it's clear both that she's not eager to do that. The government certainly isn't eager
0: to have her do that. And also that the ACLU is not pushing for that. Yep. But, but,
1: you know, boo. Boo. We say boo. Um, Speaking of sustainable members, there actually hasn't been news um, from the CMCR, the Court of Military Commission Review, in the Al-Nashiri case, which is surprising because that case is kind of on hold pending the government's interlocutory appeal, which the CMCR is presumably now clearly resolved. But, Bobby, there is one new piece of news that will surely come as a salve to all of those who have just been waiting on pins and needles for this case to resume. And that is? Judge Bath is retiring. Can you blame him? Well, no, but, I mean... <laughs> blame him you know, Okay, you know who I can blame? I can won't blame, have me to kick her out anymore. I can blame some people, right? Um, I can blame the D.C. Circuit for abstaining from uh, Nashiri's pre-trial challenges military commission. I can yeah. blame the Supreme Court for denying cert because apparently they thought this was actually going to get wrapped up expeditiously. Yeah,
0: I know. And just the whole idea of you've got the system where um, we, we've had plenty of personnel turnovers in every piece of the system because you've got people that are rotating in and out of service, some of the people who are towards the end of their time in service. You know,
1: poor Mark Martins has had to renew his— He's m- going to be the longest-serving one-star general in, like, military history. No,
0: and, and you know, bless him for being willing to, to continue to serve. But, you know, these issues aren't really common in you when you prosecute in the federal criminal justice system. And we would have long since have resolved— all these cases if we had done it that way.
1: You know, and, and, and you know, if this, re- if, so if this, re- you know, someone might say, well, wait, if it's an, Ar- an Article 3 judge could retire, yeah, and there'd be a whole bunch of people ready and willing to jump right in and take over who have all kinds of experience handling similar cases. Who's going to step in for Judge Bath? Right, and and actually, I
0: cannot. Can you think of a single example of an ongoing pending criminal prosecution where an Article Three judge just retired in the middle of it and dropped the case? I'm sure there are. There have been illness examples, I'm right. sure, and deaths. Right. right, But I can't think of it. Certainly, no high profile case. Well, because you – right. I mean,
1: if you if you're ready to retire, you get, you might go senior, but, but Bob, you keep the case. Bobby, part of it's the time horizon, also, right? Which is that usually you say, I'm gonna, I'm going you know, I'm gonna take senior status, I'm gonna retire effective six months from now, and in those six months, you'd have the bloody trial. That's right. You and you'd have. <laughs> Control over whether
0: that right. was Spat,
1: I think if I remember the Kyle Rosenberg story correctly, he says he's leaving effective November 1st. And clearly this is a, yeah. So so what a mess. It's just yet another delay in the military. Right, because now, so now let's assume everything goes perfectly for the government. And what that means is they win in the CMCR. There's either no appeal to the DC circuit or they win in the DC circuit. And so the case can then recommence. Well, now they're going to have to find another judge. What fun! I think we're going to need a bigger a bigger boat. We're going to need a bigger boat. All right. So so all that's to say, you know, man, that those military commissions are just doing great.
0: Now on this program, we often are touting uh, the success of the Justice Department in ter- terrorism related cases, in part because we are constantly hitting this theme of how that system has such obvious advantages over the military commission system, um, and and it's backed up by the facts. However, this week, uh, they've got a contrary decision in a terrorism-related case. Well, We're wait
1: creating... a second. So wait, can, can, I, can, I, can I be a little obnoxious for a second? Sure. So I think you and I read slightly different things into these developments, right? Which is you see these as success stories for the government's ability Right to take these terrorism suspects and put them away for a long time. You're talking about the DOJ successes, yes, right? And I see them as success stories for the courts, right, and showing that our legal system is capable of dispensing fair-handed, you know, justice in these cases. So I I'm don't not think sure. that's either or. I think that I, I certainly agree with that as well. So I'm not, so all I'm saying is I'm not so sure that like you know it's a blow to DOJ, right, to lose a motion like this. I'm not sure. It, uh, in some ways, it may actually vindicate, right, the utility of having these cases in civilian courts where there's no shadow legitimacy. It,
0: well, yeah, so that kind of depends on where one sits, right? Indeed. So it could, be I'm sitting vind- over here.
1: it could be vindicate on the left side of the desk. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Wait. Uh, yeah, depends shit. on where you stand. Uh, <laughs> no, no. I am I am sitting on the west side, the west side of the desk, yeah. and you are on the east side of I'm the desk. I'm on the Gulf Coast This side. is totally true. <laughs> I'm on the El Paso side. That's right. I'm on the Port Aransas
0: side. <laughs> Go Port A. All right, so what's what are we talking about here? We're See, talking about a what is, no doubt, if anyone was paying attention besides us, a controversial <laughs> decision by a district judge, uh, Sidney Stein, uh, in the Southern District of New York.
1: Manhattan. Yeah,
0: undoing the... And the Bronx uh, and parts of Westchester. Uh, that's right. Oh, don't forget White Plains. I said parts uh, of Westchester. Yeah, I know. That's why, that's why I was joining in there. Uh, I... You know, Steve is a New Yorker by birth. I spent five years there, clerk there, so I, I claim a little bit of visitation rights. Um, Fair enough. Uzair Paracha had been convicted back in 2005. Let me kind of set it up by describing the basics of the fact pattern, and and I think the real import of this is it's a case that goes right in there with the Musawi litigation as a relatively rare example of something that in theory could come up in any number of these cases um, where there are pre-trial, for want of a better description, discovery related issues and then evidentiary issues about um, how you get testimony from people who may be in military custody. Um, And it's and it goes like this. Um, Uzair Paracha arrived in the United States from Pakistan uh, in early 2003 and almost immediately is uh, under investigation by the Joint Terrorism Task Force that is investigating the, the Al-Qaeda situation writ large. Um, they have extensive multi-day pre-arrest uh, interviewing with him that does ultimately, you know, at a certain point along the way, there's a Miranda warning. Eventually, he's arrested as a material witness in relation to the grand jury investigation into Al-Qaeda, and then later charged, prosecuted. Um, What they wanted to know about when they started interviewing him, that for a variety of reasons, the FBI already had reason to suspect that he and his father, uh, Saifullah Paracha, uh, had been involved with, people linked to Al-Qaeda or who were suspected of being linked to Al-Qaeda, in particular, Majid Khan and Amar al-Balouki. And more specific than that, the the suspicion was that Uzair Paracha in particular had been doing things to assist Majid Khan's entry into the United States in connection with a bomb plot orchestrated by KSM. So really serious stuff. Um, And during the course of this multi-day interrogation, Uzair Paracha inculpated himself extensively in relation to this, but not always consistently. So there's a lot of complexity to the various things he conceded doing and said it happened. Um, he was ultimately arrested at the end of this whole process, charged with providing material support to al-Qaeda and conspiring to do so and so forth. Um, in the pretrial process, the defense wanted to depose KSM, Majid Khan, Baluki, all these folks, um, and what ultimately happens then is sort of a Musawi litigation type issue. And if you know the Zacharias Musawi litigation, you know what I'm talking about. You've got a federal criminal defendant in an Al Qaeda related case, and there are relevant. There's relevant testimony in the minds of people who are at Gitmo or elsewhere, and the question arises: Can the defense access them? I mean, these people may have exculpatory. Uh, evidence, there's sort of Brady issues and due process issues more generally, and SEPA issues. The way that the Musawi litigation famously resolved this was, pr- I would say, Steve, I bet you'll agree with this, pretty government-friendly. Um, really in the li- Fourth Circuit. In the Fourth Circuit. Not, not in the trial court. Right, no, because Judge Brinkham had uh, struck the death penalty and then ultimately the Fourth Circuit intervened and said, no, what the government wants to do here, which I would describe as a very kind of heavy lean into SEPA, the Classified Information Procedures Act, involving the process of trying to create a, an unclassified version in format of the heart of the relevant testimony that the defendant is constitutionally entitled to get and use. Under both the due process and confrontation clauses.
1: Exactly so. Exactly so. And so there were, and, and, and I think you and I agree that although the Fourth circuit rule was government friendly, had the case actually produced a post-conviction appeal, Musawi obviously ultimately pleads guilty. It's not obvious that the Supreme Court would have blessed this, given that Justice Scalia, of course, right at that moment was once again reasserting his formalistic confrontation clause tendencies. See Crawford. Exactly. Um, so decided the same year. Not obviously
0: would go against it either, yeah. but but it's it, it, so it's a big kind of question. And, and a lot of us wrote about this a decade ago. How, how especially the, Bobby? I, I did write about this a fair amount <laughs> in my convergence article with Jack Goldsmith. Go find that online and tell me if we got it right back in 2000, whatever it was. But um, we talked about how. The criminal justice system in terrorism-related cases, the same pressures that that tended to distend, resort to military detention under the law of war model, also would of course find expression in the criminal justice system in really high-intensity cases like that one. And Paracha's case was one of these cases, and actually drew very little attention at the time. But the court followed Musawi very explicitly, following the Fourth Circuit's model, and so bringing that into the Southern District, and in in the. Upshot of it all was that they introduced and agreed upon a set of written summaries involving uh, Khan and Baluki's testimony, the thrust of which was, well, it's interesting. Some would say, and some did say, that well, it's largely exculpatory. It's not that direct in exculpating Uzair Paracha, but it was stuff that suggested that maybe maybe he didn't fully know what was going on. And the and the question was because it was material support, did he know that the guys he concededly was aiding, did he know they were Al-Qaeda, and did he know what they were, what they were up to? Uh, and, the, and the written summaries tended, I think when you read them, tended to exculpate him from that. Um, but as Judge Stein writes in his most recent opinion, which we're building up to here, they're uh, pretty equivocal, and they might even be read the other way, at least in Judge Stein's uh, view. Now, based on that, the defense then stipulated to a critical point that Khan and Baluki were in fact Al-Qaeda members. That's critical because later on, post-conviction, and he is, he is then convicted in 2005. Post-conviction, the public begins to see things like the combatant status review tribunal transcripts for Al-Baluki right. and for Khan, and, and other, other sources of information beginning to come out later on over the years, thus setting up the newly available component of a motion for a new trial. And two things are different in Judge Stein's account of these post-2005 statements. One, these guys explicitly deny being in Al-Qaeda. Now, whether you credit that or not, uh, that's a different deal. But the, now the re, now there's no reason for the defense, if they'd known that, to stipulate, to stipulate and take that critical issue out of the government's burden. Right. Uh, and then secondly, there are really expressed statements from uh, Khan in particular. Baluki had already said things exonerating or trying to exonerate Uh, Uzair Paracha but now Khan very explicitly said you know 30 years that guy didn't even know what was going on he didn't know about us so Stein concludes look if they'd had this then, and they couldn't reasonably have had it then, but if they had it then, the defense would have ch- conducted the trial very differently. And it, and you can't say this might not have made a big difference. Who knows? Maybe they'd win, maybe they wouldn't, but it might have made a big difference. And the other evidence, especially his own inculpating interrogation statements or interview statements, uh, were not so overwhelming as to make this a moot point anyways. I'm not so sure about that myself, but it's not like it's entirely outside the bounds of reasonableness. Either way, an amazing thing. 13 years after the conviction, the the, uh, conviction is set aside and there's going to have to be a new trial. Now, I have no idea, Steve, why it took 10 years, because this all began in 2008. I have no idea why
1: it took 10 years for it to get to this point, and I'm sure some listener does. Please enlighten us. So my, my sense is that some of this is that there was a fair amount of wrangling over which materials were and were not properly subject to the motion for a new trial in the first place and that took some time to sort all yeah. of that out before you could get to the merits of the motion.
0: And I think it's only fair to say, this does show that we, we often talk about how the issues that gum up the military commissions, you know, if only they were in the Article Three civilian courts, everything would be so smooth and settled. There, there will be things that are unique to this context that will be hard even for the Article Three courts to deal with. However, that said they're still going to be better at dealing with them. Now, whether this case is an example of dealing with it right or wrong, I don't know. Uh, I assume the
1: government can take this to the Second Circuit. They can, although they could also, if they feel confident about their ability to retry him, just retry him and spare the trouble and and avoid a circuit precedent.
0: Stein does emphasize very strongly in his opinion that the trial judge has, very strong discretion because no one knows the evidence and the balance of the evidence at trial better than the trial judge. So I think it has to be an abuse of discretion, I believe,
1: for the Second Circuit
0: to reverse. That's right.
1: Now, and and, and it's hard to, you know, the Second Circuit, uh, this is not the kind of case where they'd be especially in a hurry to reverse one of their own district district judges. Um, I will say, I, I think one of the things that's interesting here is I think what you're seeing, Bobby, is something We've always speculated about, but because there have been so few of these cases not seen in practice, which is the difficulty that arises just procedurally, let alone substantively, from using statements elicited from detainees either at CAA Black Sites or at Guantanamo in ordinary Article Three civilian criminal prosecutions. But, of course, the government didn't want to use No, 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 right. You know, that, the, that, no, the difficulty is both ways. Yes, yes, yes. Right? Mm-hmm. That, that, that whether they're inculp- inculpatory or
0: exculpatory, whatever. Right. It's right? a huge issue. It's a huge issue. I mean, just the voluntariness—you know—attacking, impeaching the credibility of the declarant when you yep. introduce a statement like this, it just jumps out at you that
1: there's reasons to, to wonder about it. So this—I—I I, I haven't seen this role get like hardly any attention. Is it because it was Tuesday before July Fourth? No, I—I th- I think that. People, I think there's a, a real fatigue.
0: This is a sort of ruling that if it had dropped right when Obama was, yeah, you know, like a huge contemplating story. closing Guantanamo or had just ordered it, it'd be a huge story. And people are saying, "Oh, look, the civilian criminal justice system—it's got this or that feature to it." Um, years passed when detention and enemy combatants and all issues surrounding them and their statements was was all in vogue. And the truth is
1: that that's not the kind of attention uh, it gets today. Maybe that's the Trump effect too. Maybe. Although I mean, I, I have to say, I'm I'm. It's fat. I mean, this is, you know, this is a, we, my co authors and I set a a cutoff of July 1st for things we're going to put in the casebook supplement, which is now at 209 pages for a two year old book. Um, Had this come three days earlier, I think we would have had to put this in. I mean, this is a big deal. Oh,
0: absolutely. I think it's a huge deal. Yeah.
1: Um, All right. Speaking of DOJ, criminal. Yeah. Let's do a lightning round
0: on other interesting things that happened since last we met. Uh, I think we foreshadowed this last time, a week and a half ago, but didn't actually get to it. Uh, the, the Abu Qatala sentence. Yeah, Abu Qatala got 22 years. Uh, this is this is uh, someone heavily alleged to have been and then convicted for being heavily involved in at least some aspects, though not all aspects, of the set of events involving Benghazi. Uh, so a 22-year uh, sentence there. He's, I guess, going to get some time served credit for that. He's 47. Uh, he'll be presumably sent back to Libya when he's in his late
1: 60s. Yeah, I mean, I think you know it's another example, Bobby, I think, of... Just sort of things being mundane, right? I mean, this right. too wasn't, I mean, yeah, no one pays attention. I think there's was a Washington Post story about it, but it was like buried and, you know, no one else really was looking at it. It's I just mean, like, it's like in the blotter.
0: Hey, 23 year sentence in this case, right. Involving Benghazi and, you know, all the Not events. Not just
1: Benghazi. I mean, but also, remember Abu Qatal, this is the slow ship guy, right? Yeah. Involving like a whole slew of complicated pretrial litigation over what you and I have called National Security Criminal Procedure. Mm -hmm. And as you know, I'm a fan of the hybrid model
0: that was used in this place where, and this is such a critical point I always want to convey, you don't have to choose between an entirely start-to-finish military process and an entirely start-to-finish civilian process. You can have military capture overseas. You can cross rough, as Steve likes to say. I'm still not 100% sure what it means because I don't play bridge, (laughs) but I like the sound of it. Now, Catala wasn't the only development. Uh, We've got a new arrest. I'm sure most did hear about because right before the 4th of July there was news of a guy arrested for plotting uh, to carry out a bombing I think in Cleveland um, on the 4th of July because but LeBron left it was absolutely it was apparently unrelated no in fact it's a, it's a it's a pretty disturbing story um, so there will be further developments in that case um, there's a 20-year sentence in a terrorism investigation uh, that was a this is a really weird one, right? So this is this guy Duncan was uh, in communication with a terrorism-related suspect overseas, and it looks like through that he came to the FBI's attention. Um, ended up in, in an array of complex ways, ultimately being convicted for child pornography, but also uh, destruction or obstruction of justice through the destruction of evidence when the FBI came and raided his house, and he tried to destroy a thumb drive. So twenty years since for that guy's. And then lastly, I want to note, uh, turning to cartel violence and uh, sort of the national security aspects of international narcotics trafficking, the guy who was El Chapo's successor, this this fascinating figure who – was known as, in English, it would be The Graduate, this this sort of uh, this character who had legal training and had worked in, in a prosecutor's office with responsibility for the maximum security prisons, which happened to include El Chapo, and then who left that job shortly before El Chapo escaped the first time, uh, ultimately became a close confidant of El Chapo. El Chapo more or less wanted him to be the successor after he was captured and ended up extradited to the United States. Well, last November, uh, this guy was himself captured, and just before the Mexican election that brought AMLO into power in Mexico, uh, he's extradited to the United States. And to me, it's it's just an, another case like El Chapo that highlights how the United States and Mexico have had this very important collaboration in the most sensitive, Difficult for Mexico senior cartel leader cases, where some of these people are brought to the United States for prosecution and for more secure incarceration. And one of the big questions going forward is: Will that cooperation continue under Amlo? So we'll come back to that over time as the uh, the situation with Mexico's new president becomes clearer. Now, enough prosecution, Steve. Let's talk civil litigation. What's all this business about tort suits?
1: Tort suits. Who cares about? It? I, I thought Put we were, aren't we anti? Are you wearing a tort suit? Am I wearing a tort suit? I don't think so. Now, do you own a suit? I do own a suit. There are some. Cons- you know, I saw it at the Supreme Court. I was going to say there. You know, it, it doesn't happen often where I don a suit. I, I am to our to our folks who have never had the, the misfortune of, of meeting me in person. Um, <laughs> I am not an overdresser. You know, a few of us are in Austin. I'd say. Yeah, we
0: have a couple colleagues. A few. There should be a few. A but faculty should have a diversity of, of many
1: things, including. And I will style. say, and I think among the tenured faculty at the University of Texas School, I'm also not the most underdressed. No, that's probably true. I, as well. I think I'm, I'm no worse than third.
0: Okay, let's digress. Frivolous digression. Um, <laughs> law professors and and garb in the classroom. Well, white guys get away with so
1: much more there's, than everybody else. Well, there's
0: there's no question. I think there's a hugely gendered aspect, unquestionably. Yep. And there's probably also a race related yep. aspect. I don't know about that, but I've certainly thought about yep. and have been made aware of the yep. gendered aspect. Um, so, do you think? Do you ever think about wearing or early on in your career did you wear
1: a suit yes. to try so, to bolster your so authority? My first Two weeks at the University of Miami School of Law in August 2005. I, w- I showed up in a full suit for my civil in procedure August class. August in Miami. I bet well, that was rough. So it was August in 2005. So it took about you know four class sessions before I was like, you know what, no. So but for, was it just weather driven or style driven because Miami is a more laid back uh, place? Um, so my, I will say Miami, the, the law school takes uh, uh, attire very seriously. Oh, okay, so it wasn't um, just that no one else was wearing a suit. No, I think it was just that it was hundred. It was like ninety degrees every day, and I was sweating through my suit. So, Slight humidity. So exactly. Um. So I sh- shortly, and also two weeks in, it was like whatever. They either like me or they don't. Yeah. Um. So I switched then to what was really my uniform for a while, which was just a button down shirt and khakis. Um, for a long time. Um, as time has gone on, the button-down shirt has been replaced by polo shirts, <laughs> and the khakis have been replaced by jeans. So, but do you make a point of keeping a collar? Um, yes. So I don't wear t-shirts. I don't teach in t-shirts or shorts. Um, I want uh, sneakers sometimes. But <laughs> but um, polo shirts and jeans are my, my standard uniform.
0: OK. So or when I started, I had all Which, these by sh- the way, as
1: you know, since we talked together for a whole semester. Indeed.
0: Right? Um, I'm much more casual than I used to be. I had all these suits because I'd been in practice mm-hmm. for a few years, and, and I wasn't just trying to <laughs> stop wearing those suits, so I wore them out until they got nice and shiny, and then gradually they, they dropped out. Only in more recent years, I've had to reacquire suits. Associate As all these uh, administrative duties have come that's the on. Best,
1: uh, one of the many reasons why the administration will never be for me is, is I like rolling into work in a T-shirt and shorts I, days my, and I'm not teaching.
0: My ideal teaching outfit is, is blue jeans, boots, and button-down. Maybe a blazer if it's, you know. See, you're just fancier than me. Oh, the boots try to keep it
1: less. All right, so, so back to torts. I am not wearing a tort suit, although I will say that apparently the, uh, the President Trump entered into a contract with Kim Jong-un. Oh, a contract, eh? Yeah. Let's so see. <laughs> offer? Acceptance? Were, were any of the elements? <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> oh, oh, well. All right. So we have talked before, although I think only briefly and usually tangentially, for example, when talking about like Al-Shamari and the Abu Ghraib litigation, about this whole sort of body of case law where you have tort suits against private military contractors. Um, And these are cases that are under state law because there's no federal tort law governing private defendants, the Federal Tort Claims Act only applies to the federal government, where you have this complicated range of defenses because, Bobby, many of these cases are brought against private military contractors for in-theater torts. Um, So in Al-Shamari, for example, you have victims of Abu Ghraib um, who are non-citizens, right, suing Khaki, the military contractor, for its role in the abuses of Abu Ghraib. Um, you have in the burn pit litigation, the Fourth Circuit case that, that I want to talk about for a second, um, service members um, as the plaintiffs who are suing KBR and a couple of other entities because KBR in theater routinely constructed these burn pits. Right. Um, now, the burn pits were, by design, the burn pits were meant... To be done right, that That's often how it's done. But KBR was burning stuff in the burn pits that they weren't supposed to be burning—hazardous materials, batteries, etc.—and these service members suffered, you know, documented injuries from the effects of being exposed to the byproduct of these burn pits. Um, and then my favorite is this most recent case from Texas, where you have someone uh, uh, who was bitten by a dog. Right, oh, a service member. Yeah. Who got bit by a, uh, a contractor-owned IED, right. IED detection dog. Exactly right. It is literally a case who about a got, dog bite. Who had just gotten loose from the kennel. Yeah, yeah. And just for every reason, you know, missed. Literally a dog bite case. Literally a case about a dog bite. All right. So um, these cases have really, Bobby, been on the upsurge since about 2004, 2005. Um, there are actually very few of these cases before that date. Um, one sort of run of judicial decisions has recognized a defense that's available to these contractors in these cases based on a 1988 Supreme Court case called Boyle um, where the idea is that the contractors insofar as they're simply carrying out the, the instructions of the contract yeah. are it's not quite derivative sovereign immunity but they're basically but they're in the shoes they're in the shoes of the government and so insofar as the litigation would basically have the effect of forcing the government to pay for conduct that Congress has yeah. not subjected them to the liability for did of the contractors got it that's one line of cases that's not where the ca- that's not where these cases are these cases the burn pit case and the texas dog bite case mm-hmm. are being resolved on an even more structural ground which is that they present non-justiciable political questions um, and so we had the fourth circuit in early June, um, and then the Texas Supreme Court uh, about 10 days ago, throwing out the burn pit and dog bite cases, respectively, on the ground that they present these non-justiciable political questions. Um, And I just have to say, I'm sure this will shock everyone, I think it is absolutely nuts to apply the political question doctrine, as opposed to this more sophisticated, complicated, sovereign immunity, derivative sovereign immunity. Well, and, and it's, I mean, it's a bit too superficial to say it's derivative sovereign immunity. It's really sort of Federal Tort Claims Act derivative immunity, but whatever whatever you call it, um, wholly apart from that defense. Right. Here's my problem with the political question doctrine. So the political question doctrine, basically Baker versus Cars, the famous Supreme Court case, has six factors, but you know the first two are the ones that matter. Right. right. Factor number one is does the dispute uh, uh, raise a question the resolution of which has been textually committed to a branch other than the federal courts, and that seems clearly not. The case for these, right? I mean, I agree, but the 11th and Fifth Circuits don't. It's hard to see how it's not. This is a resolution of a tort claim. So the here's the theory. The theory, and I think that you really have to deconstruct the theory to understand where the flaw is. Um, there's right about 2009. There are these consecutive circuit decisions. One from the Fifth Circuit in a case called Lane versus Halliburton. One from the 11th Circuit in a case called Carmichael. Then 2011, the Fourth Circuit jumps in with a case called Taylor where they all sort of feed on each other, and they all say, yes, it's a political question. If you peel away the layers and you go back to the sort of original analysis, on the first prong, the argument was that you couldn't sue the military directly for the same conduct, ergo, political question, right? Here's the problem. The reason why the service members in the burn pit case and the service member in the dog bite case can't sue the military directly is not because of the political question doctrine, it's because of obstacles to relief on the merits, including the limits of the Federal Tort Claims Act, right, which doesn't apply to torts in a foreign country, doesn't apply to torts committed in the conduct of uh, combat activities. And doesn't apply to any claims by service members in the scope of their military duties under the Fair Act. Which doctor. we talked about in the field and right. all that. The other right. Way. So leaving in place federal sovereign immunity. Uh, right. And so so it may well be that you can't see the military in these cases because of federal sovereign immunity. That doesn't prove that but the cases are –
0: vehicle, not political question. Exactly Patrick. so. Yeah, I, right? I'm with you on that because okay. I think that's, that sounds about right. It Good. actually should go away probably on those other grounds –
1: if they're within the bounds of the contract, you should be able to litigate that. Well, so, this is, so the Fourth Circuit's Taylor case, which is at the fountainhead of all of this, um, basically says, we interpret the political question doctrine to create a two-factor test. The first is, were you, um, were you under the control of the military? right so mm-hmm. was the actual conduct at military direction and mm-hmm. second if you were right was it so intertwined you know with the sort of nature of the military's involvement that actually allowing this case to go forward would require the court to second guess a sensitive military judgment how are those two things different so you can be under the control of the military and still do something that is completely non sensitive military judgment thing right like
0: do, do are there, is military judgment or, or yeah. that second factor right. is that sort of a proxy for Combat-related activity. I think because yeah. the military has to do literally everything that any entity in theater in theater would right. do, including just run-of-the-mill civilian-looking so things you, like if, running a burger. King. If you
1: parse through all the case law, right, what really emerges is a distinction between activity that's unlawful and activity that's unreasonable. Where if it's pu- if it's clearly unlawful, if there is a statute you can point to and say this is a violation of the statute, then the courts find a way to say, oh then no, it's not a political question. But if your claim is that it's a tort, it's right? It's a common was, law action. It's a common law action. It depends on reasonableness and standards of care, then the reaction is no no, it's a political question. That sounds more like a political
0: question justification that's rooted in the claim that somehow there's not a judicially. So, that's standard. Right. so instead of the
1: textually demonstrable commitment prong, the, the better argument, although I still think not a successful one, yeah. Is the lack of judicially imaginable standards that these cases are just too hard? Yeah, which which I think
0: partakes of a little bit of that mist in your eyes. This this the DOD is involved, the military is involved. Therefore, right. it's all a great mystery involving operational art. When of course
1: it super doesn't involve operational art, at least when we're talking about burn pit litigation. Well, the other thing I was going to say was, I mean, so let me let me say two sort two quick points. First, look at the cases where the courts are like looking at classified intelligence reports to decide if someone is a, is an is an enemy combatant detainable under the AUMF. Right. If a court is competent, if that case presents a judicially manageable standard, why doesn't a, a, a negligence yeah. suit? But second and related, I mean, I think this is the point that I find most frustrating. Um, the real sensitivity in this case is not between the plaintiff and the contractor. The real sensitivity is between the contractor and the government, right, and whether the contractor would have an indemnification claim against the government. And because, the right, whether the plaintiff was injured by a tort does not depend upon the sensitivities of the relationship between the government and the contractor. Right. Just yeah, no, who pays the bills depends on that. I agree. No, I tend to agree with you on all that, based on what you're saying. Holy cow. Yeah. All right, I know. well, we nobody else does. Else. But nobody else does. That's so, interesting. So the the 4th Circuit, the 5th Circuit, the 11th Circuit, and the 3rd Circuit, to some degree, all have these cases holding that there are at least some context where these claims can present a political question. And the Texas Supreme Court has now jumped on, yeah. on board. The interesting variation in the Texas Supreme Court is the Texas Supreme Court is, the Supreme Court is applying the federal political question doctrine to bar an action in state court, which what, is you Now, why is that odd, though? So, well, I mean, so the federal political question doctrine is federal law, right? It's derived yeah. from the federal constitution. But insofar as the federal political question doctrine is about the separation of powers, and preserving the relationship between the federal judiciary and the federal political branches. Uh, okay, I, this is where we may disagree because okay. it, certainly it is in part, in yeah. large part, about that. But I think when
0: when the nature uh, this all this whole thing sounds like it's driven by a sense that look at the end of the day, yeah. overseas military activity is exclusive, near the exclusive, provident. Prov- Province of the executive branch, yep. and insofar as that's what's driving these decisions, then
1: that'll be as true when there's state level intervention as it oh, would no, be. No, I agree for with federal. that. I just don't. Th- Again, I think that's not because of the political question doctrine, right? I think it's because of the federal defenses that may or may not be available in these I, cases. I didn't agree with that. All right, so anyway, just to just to tie the whole thing together, so um, I had not been involved in these cases previously, but I now am because I of figured, what you the heck? Were, I should have um, known. So so after the Burn Pit decision came out, um, I I jumped on board with the the team doing the Burn Pit case, and we've now filed a petition for rehearing on bonk in the Fourth Circuit the first part of which says hey guys listen we think you could still say that this wasn't a political that, that this Do case it differently this case doesn't even meet your test right for political question but the bulk of it is but if it does it is time to reconsider your test for so basically it's a frontal assault on this whole line of circuit cases. Basically, sort of without much thought, to say, oh yeah, political question, hard, go away. So, Burn Pit is the new Dalmazi. Um We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, he, I mean, so not to tie too many threads together, but you know, who is one of the most outspoken critics among circuit judges of lower court overuse of the political question doctrine? Who might that be? Brett Kavanaugh. Oh, indeed. So, you know, Kavanaugh wrote a concurrence in the D.C. Circuit's El Shifa case in 2010 where he talks about just how rare the Supreme Court actually applies the political question doctrine. Are you trying to get him not nominated in a few hours? Yes, because once again, quit, President quit, Trump quit listens to this podcast. Quit fooling a McConnell. <laughs> Listen, I, I have, I have, I have all the feels about the upcoming Supreme Court nomination. Um, I, as much as I am a fan of Judge Kavanaugh, I think we we could do worse than among the the sort of list of names that are out there. We could do worse than Justice Kavanaugh. I would love a Justice
0: Kavanaugh. We'll come back to that in a moment. Um, Al so Shamari, we should say Burn something Pitt. about Al Shamari based on this. Right. We're just going to flag that the Abu Ghraib suit against Khaki, uh, that's
1: probably going to go to trial this fall. Partly because the, four, the very same Fourth Circuit reversed Judge Lee's ruling that the torture claim wasn't a judicially manageable standard because figuring out whether something is torture or not is hard. Right, So, th- and so the, the Fourth Circuit said, no,
0: it's not that hard, you can go forward. Now, this seems inconsistent then with Burnpit. Pitt? Yeah. So it depends. I mean, Dog so bite?
1: the 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 distinction, right? The distinction that that the Fourth Circuit draws is that Shamar is a statutory claim based upon the war crime, not the war crimes, based upon the Alien Tort Statute, Torture Victim Protection Act. I see. This is your point earlier about, yep. it. yeah.
0: And I just that that's a distinction. I don't see why that statutory claim versus common law claim, why that should be salient enough to make the difference. All right. Let's flag a couple other things. Just real quick notes. Uh, the uh, the multi detainee. Uh, renewed habeas provision arising out of Guantanamo, which has a bunch of different docket entries because it's been split across a number of different judges. Fortunately, we have someone who does all of our docket minding for us. That's right. Shout out to our our super uh, super assistant, Rising Two L Alex Holland.
1: Um, he tracks this stuff for us, folks. We don't track it all <laughs> ourselves. By the way, sorry, just just, just, just because this is funny. Um, Nate Silver just tweeted, in that Kawhi Leonard has been traded to the Supreme Court in Ow! exchange for Samuel Alito and an unprotected first-round clerk pick. Oh my God, that strikes close that to the bone. Tweet, that I, tweet brings like all your world. It together. does, and I got to say that might
0: be a better haul than uh, the Spurs are actually going to get. Although we're going to talk about that, I think during our frivolity. Ooh. Um So there's a hearing in, in this. Uh, in one aspect, I think the bulk of the detainees, the largest bunch, have a merit hearing on Wednesday, I believe. Mm-hmm. We'll have more coverage next week. And then a, a case that actually hits near and dear for you, Steve Wikimedia Foundation versus NSA. There is a. You know on, me, and you know me and Wikimedia.
1: Yes, indeed.
0: Um, we don't have an actual ruling. Here, we're just flagging that there is a pending dispute over whether FISA overrules the state
1: secrets privilege here. The very first brief I ever filed as a lawyer was in a case called Hepting versus at and back Hepting. in the Ninth Circuit is that a, yeah, in, in 2007. And the argument the brief advanced in that case, which the Ninth Circuit didn't endorse but sort of nodded to, was that the existence in FISA, Bobby, of a provision that specifically contemplates civil litigation... Suggests that it's hard to reconcile litigation over FISA with the state secrets privilege. That if Congress has the power to override the state secrets privilege, which depends upon whether the privilege is a common law evidentiary rule or constitutionally grounded, FISA actually seems to suggest that if you're claiming a violation of the statute, the privilege might be overridden in those cases.
0: Is part of the problem though who's being sued? Yes. Right. So this is what the go- the government argues in its yes. brief. Like, and and I think that I think the Ninth Circuit held in Al Haramein later on, which. I can't recall. Is that actually the same as
1: happening that was a separate case from happening? No, no, eventually so it started as a different case, it the one where they
0: accidentally turned over documents yes. showing the guy yes. he'd been surveilled and then they had to claw that back and pretend no one knew and then he lost on state secrets totally. grounds. Point being, the uh these waiver provisions anticipating civil litigation, the the anticipated defendant is not the government itself, it's not the
1: NSA or the US government, it's a particular individual. Right. And so so the question is whether even if you accept that 1810 which is the standalone civil action in FISA, does in fact abrogate the state secrets privilege as applied to claims arising under 1810 Wikimedia's claim is not under 1810. Wikimedia is suing under the APA, and they're suing for a traditional injunction under principles of equity. And so even if you accept the sort of, yes, FISA overrides the state secrets privilege in the cases in which you're suing under FISA, if you're suing just for a violation of FISA under a different vehicle, does the same argument hold?
0: So we'll, we'll keep monitoring this one. Uh, that's a big deal. Yeah,
1: that is a big deal. It could open up the floodgate. I predict it won't. Um, I think that's we'll right. But I, I will just say, I mean, it does, it does require Bobby Courts to figure out something that they never conclusively resolved a decade ago when this was all the rage, which is: is the state secrets privilege constitutional or common law? Because that would go along with you know one reason yeah. why you could say FISA couldn't overrule the state secrets privilege is because. You could you could believe, as I think the right. Fourth Circuit suggested in El Masri, that the privileges, in fact, grounded in Article 2.
0: Yeah, and and that is my view if you've read my stuff on state tickets privilege. I
1: disagree. I know you
0: do. It's, it's good to be right <laughs> when you disagree. All right. Wait, we've got more Who, who said you were right? I did. What court?
1: If I can't vote for myself, who's going to? Uh, Fair enough. Yeah. All right. All
0: right, so what about Judge Carter and this FOIA business? Yeah,
1: okay, so... So there's a whole body of emerging FOIA law about selective voluntary disclosure. Um, And selective voluntary disclosure is the specific phenomenon, Bobby, of whether the government, by selectively disclosing particular kernels of information, is opening itself up to FOIA claims for the stuff that they're not disclosing that is intimately related, right, intimately intertwined. Right. So we talked, I think, about a month ago about the Johnson ruling from Chief Judge McMahon. And whether the CIA, by emailing a couple of reporters, had, in fact, more broadly declassified the program about which they were emailing reporters, Chief Judge McMahon says no. This case is a new twist, right? This case, with the unhelpful caption, New York Times versus Department of Justice. (laughs) Uh, Oh, no, I'm sorry, New York Times versus CIA. It's even better. Oh, right, perfect. no, DOJ. Eh, whatever. New York Times versus government flunkies. Um, So, President Trump, as he is wont to do, lashed out on Twitter... Um, After the Washington Post had reported details of apparently a CIA, an alleged CIA program to secretly arm, train, and equip Syrian rebels, which, Mm -hmm. Bobby, I have so much trouble believing is true. Uh, I mean, there's no way that we're doing that. (laughs) Never. Well, and perhaps not anymore. Yeah, well, all right. Um, President Trump, in his tweets criticizing the Washington Post, managed to actually confirm some details about the program. (laughs) Good job there, President Trump. Smooth. And so the New York Times brought a FOIA request saying, well, wait a second, President Trump just publicly admitted this thing, this thing, and this thing about this hitherto secret program, therefore we want all documents, blah, blah, blah. The question that was raised in this particular ruling was whether the government was therefore no longer able to file what's called a GLOMAR response, which of course is, we can neither confirm nor deny the existence of documents responsive to this request if President Trump had, on Twitter, admitted that the program that the Glomar response would otherwise be used to apply to, exists. And the district court says, Meh. 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 Twitter didn't count. So, basically, I mean, basically, yes, the district... So, it's not just that Twitter doesn't count. What 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 Judge Carter ruled is that the president doesn't declassify information by accidentally talking about it in public that there has to be some evidence of intent to declassify. And I guess my response is, well, wait a second, right? How is that consistent? The, the whole point of F- the Glomar response is that there's no basis in the public record, right, to believe that the program exists. And so it's unfair to require the agency to say we do or don't have responsive documents because simply answering the question would confirm the existence of the program. The president is publicly confirming. I, wh- I don't care what his intent is. He's publicly confirming the existence of the program. What if
0: it had been a lower level executive branch official who blurted something out that
1: they shouldn't have? So, I mean, I think, again, the question is whether there's, you know, an indicia of reliability, right? I mean, so if the government could come back and say, you know, that wasn't even true. Yeah. The, the, here's the problem with the president. Well, but, but wouldn't, wouldn't that logic though mean that yeah, if and when the next point. Snowden comes along, you're right. No, you're right. You're right. You're here's right. the difference though. The president has declassification authority, right? And so if the president can, standing in a room with the Russian foreign minister, <laughs> right, share highly classified details about an Israeli intelligence program, and the justification Bobby for that is that he's the president and he's allowed to declassify those details, right, well, then didn't he do it? Right. Right. And what Judge uh, Carter is saying is no. Could you could you split that
0: difference by saying that like it's one thing when the president's in a direct in- engagement with a foreign yep. you know, ma- uh, minister, and when the president's tweeting, it kind of comes back to this theme that Trump administration's tried to maintain that look like, the, the tweets don't necessarily mean anything. That's that's him, you know, but that's pr- him right. being him.
1: The problem is, is that Judge Carter's analysis is not tweet specific, ah. right? The analysis is about what he says is. Um, Uh, accidental public disclosures by the president. And my reaction to that is, that is nuts, right? If the whole purpose of the classification system is that the president's on top of it and he, for better or for worse, runs his mouth, I just, I So, I, but I, look, I guess the way I see it is, the
0: reality that Carter clearly recognizes, we have a uniquely undisciplined (laughs) President. And and complicated president, to put it as mildly as it possibly could be put, (laughs) you know, I'm no fan. And We can't let every screw up and and mistake this guy makes and run in his mouth result in in
1: waiver here, waiver there. So I want to be clear, right? The point is not that he declassified all the information and that it was there for subject to FOIA. The point is what's its interaction with a Glomar response. Yeah. Right? And that so I Yeah, that could be different it could still be. That's what I'm trying to say. So I think I think the government would still have been entitled to rely upon exemption one. Um, to protect release of the documents being sought. My problem is, if you're allowing the government to make a Glomar response for a program the president has publicly admitted exists, I don't know, you know. Yeah, no, that that's interesting. I, I, I'd want
0: to think through what it would mean in terms of the degree of things officials have said in public about the drones. Right, I mean, so what, uh, for the pre- example, what, the what if the
1: president from now on says, you know, even though I'm talking about this program, I have no intention of declassifying the existence of this program I'm talking about. Like, is a hortatory statement that he has no intent to declassify enough to satisfy, you know, to, to preserve Glomar as Here, an available defense? Here it would be fun, it'd be fun if we had Marty Liederman to join
0: the conversation, and maybe in the future we'll do this. Because there's also a question about, can you talk about the program at a very high level right. of generality and insist upon continued classification of the details? That is, can it retain its Title 50 covert action denied uh, Operation we,
1: we don't need Marty as a guest on the podcast. We can take a week off and just let Marty, you know, <laughs> sell, <laughs> Marty, start podcast. tweeting about that if you're listening. Seriously. Um, all right. So, anyway, big FOIA ruling. I suspect, Bobby, that we have not – that case strikes me as ripe. Appeal to the Second Circuit, which has FOIA law that is in, in some interesting ways different from the DC circuits when it comes to these kinds of questions.
0: Speaking of courts, courts. Let's we'll come back to SCOTUS. Hey, has,
1: has the president announced his nominee yet?
0: Checks Twitter, no nominee yet. All right, I guess we have to
1: just speculate, Steve. What? Where are you putting your money down? If I had, if I had, if I could pick one name and just you know put like twenty bucks on the name right now, I think it's Hardiman, uh, Judge Thomas Hardiman from the Third Circuit, just because it seems like, I mean, Bobby, to me, for better or for worse, there has been this remarkable sort of whisper campaign on the right to suggest that confirmation hearings for uh, Amy Coney Barrett is a good friend of mine, for Brett Kavanaugh, who's a good friend of ours. Um, would be very fraught politically in ways that they might not be for Hardiman, and that maybe that's the pressure they're trying to put on the White so House.
0: I think it's easy to see where they're... The, I, I think everyone agrees, and the consensus is that Amy's situation will be the most contested... I'm not, uh, sure, that's, I'm not
1: sure that's true at all. Who do you think... you Brett. Think, I think Brett would be his. So here's the problem. What would that be? So here's the thing about 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 Judge Kavanaugh. I mean, you and I both, you know, like and admire the heck out of him. Although he's a Nationals fan, yeah. um, <laughs> right? Um, and he did once troll me at a Wizards game for being a Knicks fan. That's pretty um, great. Like from across the arena, he sends me an email. Like, you know, are how you are the ha, here? how are the Knicks doing? Um, <laughs> we know the answer to that. Seriously, um, the pr- the problem I envision for him, right, is not the. Um, strength of his views is that he has written so much about a very specific topic which is executive power, unitary executive, Congress's power or lack thereof to impose constraints on the president and in the middle of Trumplandia For the president to nominate someone who, for all of his many qualities, is going to be portrayed as a defender of broad presidential power to resist subpoenas, to defy the special counsel, to, you know, to not be bound by good cause removal restrictions, I just think that's a fight you don't necessarily want if you're the White House. So the Democrats obviously would raise that. Do you think there's... What,
0: Rand Paul? I mean, is there any reason to think that any Republican senator would vote against him, or more to the point, more than one Republican senator? I don't know, but
1: the question is, are you just worried about the voter, or are you also worried about the visual, right? So, you know, if you're looking ahead to the midterms, and if you're trying to sort of hold this out as a win for the Republicans, are you worried about the Democrats running on the Republicans installing a justice who, fairly or not, will be accused of being a sympathetic vote for the president, if and when any of the mullers... I guess to the, the problem I Court. have is
0: it's so hard. I know Brett really well. I know. And I am yeah, very yeah. fond of him. And apart from that, deeply impressed with his character and the quality of his mind. And it just strikes me as, I mean, preposterous to suggest that this guy is going to be some kind of you know, green light, waving through Trump administration. Of course in fact, I agree. if anything, I think he'd be exactly the kind of person you want in there watchdogging the executive
1: branch. Listen, I completely agree. The question is not what's real. The question is oh, how's it going to be portrayed. That's.
0: But I'm explaining why. It's very hard for me to see how that could really tip the scales against him. Really? It's, in this political climate? Everything should be within the realm of imagination. I realize that. I mean, listen, if
1: you and I were in charge, it, right? if you and I were in charge, this would be a no-brainer. Right? Yeah. The, at least given the other conditions that it's, you know, President Trump yeah. and a Republican Easy Senate. no-brainer for me. Uh, uh, when you swallow for you given the context. That's right. Um the problem is is that if you it, it's it's not what's real. I mean listen, people are getting on like judge Cathledge uh, right from the 6th circuit because in a couple of cases he sided with immigrants over the government. I mean, if yeah. you're a circuit yeah, judge yeah. and you have an immigration docket, it is literally impossible to rule for the government every time. So let's let's step back and comment more at the at the broad level of how ridiculous it is. The whole that this
0: is the way anyone might actually decide, oh we should do this because I mean, there's this way of portraying him and he's ruled before this is no way to run a railroad. This is ridiculous. Uh, well, so I think that uh, it, I'm, my money's on Brett. I think he's I think he's the the best choice. I hope that's the choice. We'll see. It may not be.
1: I was, but let me just say I mean I think one of the things that I think has gotten lost within all of these, you know, hyperbolic caricatures is that the actual daylight between I think all four of the folks uh, rumored to be on the front list yeah. is marginal compared to the daylight between them and Justice Kennedy, right?
0: Um uh, yeah, although as you as you were pointing out the other day, like this past year, I guess there wasn't a single case that would have turned out different, right? No,
1: but well Masterpiece Cake Shop might have gone might have not been written the same way. I mean listen I, been written a little different. This right? year, sure. But I mean that's this year was yeah. aberrational in it, It's clearly tenure.
0: true about about abortion and gay rights, may be true on free speech, although that very much depends. I don't know,
1: um, but but, on the Ke- whole, but Kennedy was not Kennedy was not a formalist. Kennedy was not a textualist. I mean, Kennedy, yeah, we talked about he's it, hard to predict, but right. So so I just said, but I mean, but overall, a conservative judge. Yeah, but I mean, I think what, you know none of these people are on the list because they have any Kennedy tendencies, right? They're well, all on the list because th- they are reliably. The, there will not be. A Republican, right. David Tudor.
0: Not, there's not going to be some judge who's going to be different on. There, there's no scenario. and This is what's. I understand the politics of it. And of course, the Democrats are going to oppose whoever's nominated, of course, and they're going to go to the Most of them. I think
1: it. that some of the ones in 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 the, the there are a few right. people with elections in who, red who states who,
0: Yeah, and you know, and and they should, they should all. I wish just all always vote their conscience. I know that's not how it all works. Um, but the idea that there's some scenario in which, well, the president should nonetheless duplicate more or less as much as they can
1: whatever Kennedy would have done, why? No, I agree with that. I just want to say, I, I mean, I am one who believes for better or for worse that the court ought to be diverse along lots of axes. Sure. Um, and you know, if 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 it does end up being, you know, our good friend Brett, I mean, so now we're going to have eight justices who have spent their entire professional careers in between New York and D.C. I mean, I I, I am quite confident that's not your main concern about. Of course him. not. But <laughs> no, I have lots of concerns, and and you know, elections have consequences. And I get that. But I just all I'm saying, right, is that. For all of the media efforts to make out all these differences between the four of them. No, yeah, no. That's, From my perspective, yeah. right, the real difference is that, for better or for worse, these are four potential Supreme Court justices who are going to look a heck of a lot more like Neil Gorsuch, as a justice than, like, Anthony Kennedy. And, and my only comment on that is, and so will anyone else possibly going to be nominated? I think that's right. No, no, uh, oh, oh yeah. listen, I, I, I'm i resigned to my fight, my fate, and I do, I, I do I stress, resigned. I mean, this is, right. you know. What do you, okay, let's digress real
0: quick. All this uh, kerfuffle about court packing. I was amazed oh, to God. see how much. I mean, what is, is it just me, or is this, like, the, the candidate for worst idea of the year? These people who are... Proposing no, the no, no. they're
1: were... separating parents from their children at the border is a worse idea than court packing. I didn't
0: say I didn't say one. I just said as a candidate <laughs> reviving court packing um, in in a context in which Trump is the president and the Republicans control both houses and Hey, let's emphasize the idea of court packing plans for the future when maybe that won't be the case That seems like an incredibly short-sighted thing to suggest.
1: So uh... I don't know about the politics of it. I just want to talk about the substance of it, right? I mean, I tweeted pretty early on that, you know, I am fervently against court packing. um, And I think it's worth stressing why. So the folks who are proposing, I mean, it's worth worth saying a word in their defense. I mean, these are folks who feel victimized, right? These are folks who feel like, you know, the Republicans more than the Democrats have maximized every ounce of their political power to sort of take maximum advantage of every situation um, in a way that has potentially overrepresented, right, the modern conservative movement on the Supreme Court compared to, say, the results of the last, you know, seven presidential elections. No, there's no question that
0: what you said descriptively captures the feeling of a lot of the people who are most upset. I will just comment that this larger tendency by people all over the political spectrum to feel like they're the most put upon and they're getting screwed and it's time to take Listen, more I'm aggressive not, actions, I'm, not, I'm, I'm very concerned I'm about the net I'm
1: not condoning those. that. I mean, right, so this is my concern, right? It's a race to the bottom. Exactly. And, and you know, Ben, ben Ben Wittes and Miguel Estrada wrote this, I think, in an op-ed in the Washington Post, right about the time that Justice Scalia passed away. Um, that you know, listen, the Democrats are going to say the Republicans started it. The Republicans say the Democrats started it. Yep. You know, no one's ever going to convince the other side that they're right about that. <laughs> exactly. What is clear beyond peradventure is that it's getting worse. Um, right, that that holding the garlic holding the seat open without even giving Merrick Garland an up or down vote, whatever the precedent was, not a you know sort of positive move in so far as healing the confirmation process. Would you? And so I think, yeah, so sorry. I think, from the perspective of the folks who are proposing court packing, this is the next logical step, which is you did your right. norm-breaking thing right. to get now, your result. Here's our response. Here's our response. Yeah. And listen. I disagree with it substantively for reasons I want to get to in a second, but I understand why they think that, like, you know, it's like, when you're, it's, you know, one up. it's one-upsmanship.
0: No, right. It's Lex Talonis, and, and it's eye for an eye, leaves the whole world now, behind. Now, why is it a bad I idea? Share. Okay, so yeah.
1: the bad idea part is actually pretty, I think, subtle but important. Um, it's not that I think that if Congress passed a statute increasing the size of the Supreme Court to 11— overnight the court would lose all of its legitimacy as an institution. No, it's been altered before. The pro- Well, but not but – hold on a second. But not since 1869. And, right, for most of the first, you know, 70 years, uh, uh, 80 years of our constitutional system, the size of the court was at least pegged generally to the number of circuits. Right, you right? kind so of match that,
0: it. You had a justice per circuit.
1: And so there was a neutral rule that at least until 1866 governed the size of the Supreme Court. Not that it wasn't political, but that it was at least – there was some – you know, well, there was an objective indicator is where, how
0: big is the United States? Right. How many circuits and we And the had?
1: justices generally, although not exclusively, came from you know the representative circuits. That changes with the Lincoln and Andrew Johnson Michigas, right. which is its own sorry episode in American history. Um, but... It's not that the court would change to 11. It's that then the next time the Republicans are in charge, the court Another. goes to 13. No, exactly. And then 15. Every then, time you have unified government, right. someone tries to ram through and then instant 40, control. And then 40 years from now, the Supreme Court has 71 justices, and it's dead as an institution. No, right. And, and all it is is just a, a, a sort of a polling mechanism. We already got that. We have the Congress. Right. So, so as someone who deeply believes that the Supreme Court exists to be an anti-democratic force, or at least a counter-democratic force in American political culture, I think that court packing, although I understand where it comes from, um, is only going to, you know, it may be sort of, vet, uh, uh, it may feel good in the short term. It'll destroy the Supreme Court in the long term. Well, I couldn't couldn't agree more. Um, all, right. all right, well, you know, I think we should... Should we save cyber for next week? Yes, I think we should punt it, and I think we should close with a little bit of sports for volume. So, so we also are not going to talk about the Senate Select Committee? In oh, the, right, the no, you're, no, you're right. We, can't, we might as well. The poor thing keeps getting short shrift. Yes, it's a big uh, deal.
0: I, so I, I'm not sure what there is for us to say because I know we both agree with pretty much everything it has to say yes. and and appreciate. I know but, we share an appreciation. But in a nutshell, right? I mean, yeah. in, a nutshell,
1: in a nutshell, what it says is we, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, not only agree with the intelligence community's assessment, the ICA, about Russian interference in the 2016 election, we actually think the assessment undervalued and underemphasized yes. a number of respects of the Russian involvement in interference. That's that's the key takeaway. If you didn't pay any attention to. It it takes the view that not
0: only is it all, all the things have been said, not only is this true, it's much worse than that. And this is the fruit of a Republican controlled, conservative controlled uh, Senate bipartisan effort. Uh, I guess, is that consistent, Steve, to say it's yes. bipartisan, totally. but Republican-controlled? Totally. Um, and the contrast with the House is is not surprising at this point, but it is saddening. It's even more sad that it's not getting much attention. Um, there's a certain amount of, of Russia fatigue and legislative oversight fatigue that is set in in the
1: news cycle, where yeah. that just doesn't grab news. Totally. So all that's just to say, like, this is a big deal. This is a huge, I think, rebuke to the administration and to the House Intelligence Committee and it's just, you know, it's been a nothing burger news-wise because, I mean, I guess the question is, you know, the Republicans in the majority, they signed the report, and then presumably they're the ones who dictated the timing of its release. You, you're putting a lot of weight on this as if they wanted to kind of lowball it? Tuesday afternoon before July 4th. There's literally no time where it would get less attention. But you than, think that's worse than a Friday afternoon with yes, lots of stuff? do. I do. Yeah, I not don't, I, don't, I don't think so. A lot of people were already away last week. Right, anyway. World Cup. I I, did, I don't I don't want to end such a
0: sour note for the committee because I think in in the context yeah. it is it is it is hard clearly for the Republicans to do things like this and and Burr Cornyn and others were
1: really strong. So I'm going to say I'm something you totally this. disagree with, right? Um, I agree with that part. But I also think that this has at least a little bit of the feel of we want to be able to be on record so that in retrospect we can say, look, we were there. Look, we were not Devin Nunes, right, without making a big stink because they are still worried about crossing or appearing to cross the president. Fair enough. We'll, we'll, agree, we'll disagree on that
0: one. Right. Um, World Cup! World Cup! Well, first, say something about the Spurs situation. No. Can we quickly go to the NBA? By Kawhi. Uh, so obviously, Kawhi, you know, that, you don't need us to tell you that Kawhi Leonard Wants badly to move back to L.A. and live in Southern California. Um, and he's going to go...
1: If only there was like a marquee player in Los Angeles now who would attract Kawhi as a potential swingman.
0: I don't think he needs that additional attraction. But what's interesting is that LeBron apparently has has intimated that, hey, don't don't trade away all the young assets because Kawhi is going to come here after a year anyways. And I have a three-year contract. We can wait for him. And hey, as several people have pointed out, there's a lot of other free agents coming online. And as great as Kawhi Leonard is... No one no one likes to directly say this but like this whole past year thing this is really a big red right. flag about right. like what he's willing to do to get his way and do you re- and is he really healed? So all this has been a disaster for the Spurs of the first order because it, it was already a disaster they're going to lose him but at least there was the prospect that they could get in some real nice value young pieces yeah. and now Leonard's actions and LeBron's actions are creating a dent even in the lingering value they had for him. I don't know what kind of deal they can swing. Now Tony Parker leaving the Spurs and going to Charlotte, maybe maybe adds like a degree of benefit for the Spurs in in raising the possibility that maybe there would be a way to persuade him to stay in San Antonio combined with the five-year right. you know, Supermax contract. And maybe that's just enough to scare either I, the I, Lakers I like or
1: the Sixers I, into making an offer. I feel, but, but but I mean, come on. The Lakers and the Sixers would see through that. I mean, the, the relationship between Kawhi and the Spurs seems irreparable to me at this yeah. point. So if you're the Lakers
0: or the Sixers, yeah. the only real leverage on you is the prospect that the other one that's right, might do bids. But that ought to be enough to get a deal. If I'm the Spurs, I think at this point – you take what you can get. You don't hold out for what you feel is his actual value because you don't actually have him completely. I think that's right. You try to get a couple of the Lakers pieces, not Lonzo Ball. Uh, <laughs> no way. No way in hell that should happen. Uh, or the Sw- Sixers. Swaggy P? No. Uh, I think you, you say, give me Brandon, Brandon Ingram and a draft pick. Ah,
1: um, maybe the, the the Sixers draft pick, not the Lakers draft pick. And for the Sixers, give me Darius Saric in a, in, a, in a draft pick, and we'll be happy. Oh, the NBA. Right. You know, as a Knicks fan, all I could do is take pleasure in, in the demise of other once-proud organizations. I, I will say, the Spurs will still be good, and they'll still be better than the Knicks.
0: <laughs> all right,
1: you know what? We're going to have a bet on which team finishes with a better record next year. Well, you know, the Knicks still have the advantage of playing in the worthless East. That's what East. I'm saying. Now that LeBron's out of the Eastern Conference, you know. I will
0: absolutely bet on the Spurs having a better record than the Knicks.
1: Next All right, you year. heard it here first, everybody. All right, dinner? Dinner. Dinner? dinner. dinner. With wives. With wives. Yep. Um, but not kids. Yeah, regular season record. That's the uh, Spurs forte. Regular right? like, season record. All right. Uh, yes, it. and 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 you you said they'll have a better record. So if it, if they tie, I win. Yeah, yeah. No, I'll will t- 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 give you that. Okay. Give you that. All right. You heard it here for the first. Of all. So, really quickly on World Cup. So I just want to say two very quick things about the World Cup. Um, the first is I really like how they've added video replay. Um, that that it's it really doesn't feel like it is that intrusive into the game. Yeah. That when they actually do go to the monitor, they've been doing it quickly. Yep. And that it takes away what to me was always the worst thing about high-profile international soccer, which is that one missed call can turn the yeah. entire tournament around. I agree. In soccer, in particular, there are certain
0: things about boundaries, certain objective. Easily checked by right. videos. Handballs in the box. I yeah. mean, like, you know, yeah.
1: there's literally a World Cup that was won because of a hand, a goal that was basically punched into the goal. I mean, <laughs> mano de Dios. Right. Um, so, why can't
0: other sports, especially the NFL, get this done in less than three days? Right. You know? I mean,
1: I think that's the, the, the question is what lessons are there to learn? Now, maybe it's just that soccer, you, what they've decided is they've sort of triaged everything and said there's only certain right. really high value things. That deserve replay and, and nothing honestly, else. I wish other sports would do the same. Figure out what can
0: realistically be done in a quick turnaround with objectivity right. the, that are important enough to do it and quit
1: reviewing everything else. Of course in the NFL then that first you have to decide what a catch is. Um yeah, you right. do, clarify your rules. So yes. so that's my first big observation is is yay to you know, there's been much less talk this World Cup about the referee and not yep. none, because there's referees sure. are still important. I mean, there's still cards. But like it. but you don't have this sort of match, you know, slash tournament changing Non-goal call or goal call, fair enough. That you had in prior World Cups, and I just I, I think that's been great for the tournament. So, what about um, in the teams that are remaining in it? Uh, who is there? Anyone you'd like
0: to see win? I would it, like. You know, who do you
1: think will win? So, I would like to see a Belgium England final. And I'd like to see the Belgians win because I think I mean this is the you know Belgium has been a great team for a little while now. You know, I think if I remember right, they're the ones who knocked the U.S. out right of in Brazil. Um, maybe it was twenty ten. One of the most recent World Cups, we lost yeah. to Belgium. Um, I love Eden Hazard. I think he's a great player. Jan Vertonghen. I mean, this is De Bruyne. Um, I want. I, I kind of want to see Belgium. Belgium go all the way. It's tempting to root for Croatia as the big underdog, yeah. um,
0: but. Not tempting enough. I really like the optics of seeing the English win in Moscow. Yeah, well, I there's would that. I really like to see to that. Theresa May
1: going to the final and sitting there. So what's interesting is, so Putin showed up, right, for the opening match and for the ceremonies. But for the knockout rounds, he sent Medvedev. No, right, because he assumed that they were going to lose. Right, and so he didn't want the visual of him being there when they lost, which was funny because the Croatian president was, like, dancing all around. Like, <laughs> so um, the the sec- And then the, the second thing I was going to say was, you know, I- we, there's got to be a better way. I, I, I know there's not, but there's got to be a better way to resolve these games than penalty kicks, right? I mean, I just, I hate, I, I hate having these amazing games come down to, you know, five random shots from the what spot. What about this? Uh, I don't know if this is ever attempted. What if you gradually
0: took two players off each side? <laughs> Until last man standing? <laughs> Until it's just two goalies going up. Like hockey?
1: Yeah. But right Down just to four on four and three on three? Yeah, it could, what, if you, what if you shrunk it? Seven on seven and after 30 minutes? And, and you could do sort of an NFL But Because at least that's soccer. Well, you
0: could you could start it off right. You could say like, "All right, so this side yeah. they're gonna they're gonna start the ball uncontested from midfield, and there's fewer players involved all around. Now go." And, yeah. and then and the other side gets
1: a fair crack, and you do a couple of rounds like that. I just, I just uh, at least that's soccer and not penalty kicks. There's just something so I mean, I, there's something so discomforting about having 120 minutes of high class international soccer resolved by like you know. Did you guess the right way about which way the guy was going to shoot? No, exactly. And it, it's like if you got to overtime of, a, of an NFL game yeah. and what we decided was,
0: all right, we're in overtime.
1: Field, Let's goal, have field the, goal shootout. The,
0: yeah, field goal shootout or or, or even worse, you know, punt, punt pass kick competition. It's it's a skill. Or, yes, or but baseball. But extra It was going to be resolved by a home run derby. Yes. Yes. But with like real pitchers. Yes. Yeah.
1: Anyway, I say that all just to say it's been a lot of fun. I've been watching way too much World Cup. Yeah, it's pretty fun. And I'm excited about this week. Indeed. All right. Um, Well, on that note, um, you are Bobby Chesney at Bobby Chesney on Twitter. I am Steve Vladek at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, we, are, we are probably not going anywhere for a while now. No,
0: no. We'll be back next week and in, in further duration. And, uh, you know, we are getting really close to 10,000 downloads per episode. Whoa. Spread the word. Dude, I've got re- to get my bot to download more more episodes there per There you minute. go. Or at least your relatives. Um, hey, get on there to review us on iTunes and wherever else you listen to your podcast. Tell your friends.
1: Spread the word. Tell your favorite Supreme Court nominees. Get us to 10,000. Wow, the road to 10,000. That could be be the episode title. title. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, stay safe out there.
0: Adios.